everyone, and welcome to episode 222 of the MTG Goldfish Podcast. It's Seth, probably better known as Safrat Aleph, and we have a small crew this week. Krim was away in London for a certain magic event, maybe the Mythic Championship, but Richard, the owner of MTG Goldfish, is around. How's it going today, Richard? Hey, Seth. I'm alive. I survived the weekend. Those 1 a.m. start times were rough, <laughs> Seth. They were rough. <sighs> I am very impressed. I, I did what I said I was going to do last week where I, I slept normally and tried to get up early and I would pop in around like 5.30, 6 a.m. Uh, my time and there was Richard up all night like <laughs> doing the pro tour. So I am very impressed with your dedication to staying up all night for the pro tour. You know what? It was easy because a uh, hot take, we're going to talk about it today, but I think the limited portion of the mythic championship was the most interesting so i actually wanted to see that front end part that uh, we typically uh skip and sleep in on when it's at weird hours yeah so i mean i guess that's one of our big topics for today actually we're gonna talk where the spark limited in the context of pre-release events now we're gonna talk about mythic championship london everything from that uh we had a weird sort of surprise product announcement with some sweet japanese planeswalkers we'll get to that and then of course fish mail but before we jump into it a reminder that our sponsor today is spikes academy the world first Magic the Gathering e-learning academy. They have some really cool courses by really great players, and you can even get 10% off with the code GOLDFISH over at SpikesAcademy.com, and to learn more, check out Spikes underscore Academy on Twitter. So thank you to Spikes Academy for their support, and let's jump into it, and let's kick things off today with War of the Spark. It was pre-release weekend. Uh, Richard, did you happen to uh, somehow, in your crazy 1am Pro Tour schedule also find yourself at a pre-release this weekend ah thanks to the magic that is downtime during coverage <laughs> seth i was playing arena i was playing more of the spark pre-release events uh it's sealed on magic arena at the moment so i actually got a ton of those in so i played a lot of more of the spark i'm a more of the spark expert at this point seth i think <laughs> i have like 60 packs or something and so each time you draft, you get like three power. Each time you do sealed, you get three packs, right? So that's at least 20 that I've done. <laughs> wow. Oh, I, I, I was also playing arena in between, but I was working on like against the odds and some of the video series. So I snuck in a couple of pre-release seals, but you're the expert for sure. I only, I think I did two, maybe three at the most. So you're way ahead of me. So Richard, uh, what do you think about this limited format? How was your digital pre-release experience? Like greatest limited set ever? Uh, I, I don't know. So it, it is. Very, very fun. The uncommon planeswalkers and the power level of the commons makes it extremely fun. And the only question I have whether it's going to be like the greatest set of all time is, uh, how balanced the archetypes are. And, you know, like with Innistrad, you could do basically anything you felt like it. Can we do that with War of the Spark or will there only be like two, uh, archetypes? But in terms of players, uh, and the playing experience, I thought it was, mechanic mechanics wise like the best set ever like literally the best set ever it was just so fun to play and to have all the planeswalkers and then to like kill their sparks and whatever it was just insanely fun playing the game yeah 
Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun, too. I'm personally more of, like, a draft person than a sealed person, but there's just so many really sweet cards uh, in this set that it's very unique. It is a super unique limited format because of all the Planeswalkers, so you always have crazy stuff going on, and I was impressed that it didn't feel too oppressively, like, bomby. Like, yes, yeah, sometimes your opponent has, like, Liliana Dreadhorde General or something, but in general, for a set that has 36 Planeswalkers running around in it... It wasn't as swingy and bomby as I thought it would be, and there were a lot of, like, long, pretty, like, grindy games of magic with this weird Planeswalker value and good removal, so it seemed like a really fun format to me in the couple of uh, pre-releases I did. The one thing I did notice that was a little weird, it felt really light on mana fixing. Uh, I had a lot of pools where I wanted to be three colors because of, like, my rares or just, like, how the pool broke down, but there's, like, no mana fixing in that set. So trying to, what did you think about that? Did you have a hard time going into three colors because of the lack of really hardly any fixing at all in the set? I love it. So usually there's ample <laughs> fixing and you can jam like four color miscellaneous stuff. So I like that we have a set where you can't do that. And you can do that in one specific archetype or color. I mean, so green has uh, two mana dorks uh, that can fix color or three mana dorks, I guess, with the there's the 2-4, the 2-1, and then the 2-3 Death Touch. And then they also have the Enchantment Land thing that, you know, ramps your mana and fixes it. So green has the ability to do, like, five-color nonsense decks. Everyone else has to resort to, like, the uh, if you open any gateway plazas and things like that. So I I like it, right? Like, I I was sad because, you know, I, I wanted to build a Grixis deck because I opened Nicol Bolas. And I'm like, this thing is like nigh uncastable given my pool. <laughs> like, like even though like like the rest of my cards were primarily Grixis, it's like blue, black, 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 red. I'm like, I can never cast this thing. So that was a little sad. But I did build a couple like four color decks. They're typically, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about them, especially in sealed, because you can't make them consistent enough. So when you get like reasonable mana, you crush, but then a lot of times you just dirtle and then die because they play a planeswalker, you're trying to fix mana, and now you're super far behind. <laughs> yeah, I ran into that problem trying to splash into a third color, and I think, like you said, unless you're in green, I would definitely recommend trying to stick to two colors if possible. It's even difficult to like splash a single card or two yeah. from another color. I want to like splash a couple removal spells and the price is really high. There's the one like double tapped guild gate, the one that fixes for any color. Yeah. Then there's a couple of like bad artifacts, but there is very minimal fixing outside of green. Yeah, there's the three mana mana rock and then the the four mana one that adds one of two colors. Super awkward. <laughs> Cause like I, I was trying to use it to fix uh like a white white spell. And then I'm like, oh, you can't even do that, huh? So I, I, I like it. I like it that there's actual choices being made as opposed to, I'll just put Evolving Wilds in and now my man is perfect, right? So I like it. So what stuck out to you? you did, you've done 20 seals or something. What stuck out is uh, favorite cards or best cards along with like archetypes? Were there any color combinations that just seemed super awesome and powerful? I like to play green-based decks. I think Proliferate is really strong. Either the green-white Proliferate deck is pretty good. Uh, but even like green, black, you proliferating your army tokens. So army was a mechanic that I did not expect to be so good. It is so good. Proliferate is so good. When, when we saw these mechanics, I was like, yeah, okay, random limited mechanics, but they actually, 
make the game pretty interesting and it usually does come down to those like army tokens so i i like those the uncommon planeswalkers are pretty good i'm I would have thought that it would either suck or would be too powerful, but it seems just right where it's a threat, but like a threat you can deal with. So it's like playing like, I don't know, like lingering souls or something, except everyone has access to lingering souls. It's like pretty good, but if everyone else has access to it, you know, it's kind of balanced. And the actual bombs of the set, I think, are the gods. Uh, Oketra in specific, uh, if you open Oketra in your pool, congratulations, you've just won. Oket, like there's like no way to deal with it right like there's like two enchantments to deal with a catcher otherwise you kill it and if you can't kill your opponent in three turns it's coming back and one of the grossest plays i've ever done was i ramped into a catcher so turn four Oketra, and then i played two ugin's conjurance for zero mana <laughs> so i was like because the, the, the biggest way to uh lose with a catcher is you play a catcher they remove it and then they tempo you out and then you play again and then they remove it and then you die so if you can somehow manage to oketra and play creatures so playing so playing one drops is a little questionable but ugin's conjuring is not terrible and playing for zero gets you a four four and uh, you're good to go so oketra's pretty good all the gods are so annoying uh you you kill them and you, there's no way to get rid of them like you have to kill and mill which is like very difficult or you use enchantment removal but like you can't like exile them but you can't do anything with them they're actually very annoying so you just need to kill them before they kill you thankfully they're mythic at least so they shouldn't show up super often but yeah the gods are pretty insane i was also very impressed with the uncommon planeswalkers uh i had an ashiok deck ashiok seems Ashok's really good uh, I think that might be one of the, it's probably the best uncommon planeswalker in limited. And uh, it is insane when people start with 40 cards and draw a seven card opening hand. If you could just keep your, your Ashiok on the battlefield, your odds of milling your opponent out are really high. So Ashiok was a bomb and a lot of the uncommon planeswalkers just feel like playable cards. Like I had Kaya in one of my decks, the double exile removal spell. But that's the is best planeswalker. <laughs> I, I disagree I with the Ashiok. Is the best, Kaya but... is the best. Like a double exile. Uh, Ashiok is good, except Ashiok, like, if you don't actually mill them, like, you kind of just did nothing. <laughs> but if you mill, Davriel is really good. The discard planeswalker, like, usually it's a two for one, and then it sits there and, like, pings them to death. Uh, Sahili is extremely good. Tybalt, surprisingly good. <laughs> Nahiri is good. The only ones, like, I don't like are, like, maybe, like, Samit. Plotly, Nissa. Oh, oh, the the green one, the Jang Yangu uh, is really yeah. good. They're all really you good. Didn't like you didn't like Nissa as far as one of the rare planeswalkers. Oh no, no, the Untap one. Oh, not Nissa. Oh, no, oh, no, 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 oh, Kiora, Kiora. Yeah. Oh, Nissa's a Nissa's a bomb. <laughs> the the five yeah, man of all the five insane. man of planeswalkers are insane. Uh, I had some really sweet plays. <laughs> I, I, uh, I ultimated Nissa with, uh, the three mana three two that proliferates when a land enters the battlefield. Uh, so then all my lands became like eight eights. It was hilarious. <laughs> but Nissa is like so good. It's like a three three, but that has vigilance for some reason. Uh, so you can block and it doubles your mana so you can cast your expensive spells. All of the rare planeswalkers are pretty good. Even Karn. Uh, I actually, <laughs> I actually had like four Sahilis. 
whatever is the four <laughs> mana two three flyings and like a, the two mana cycle in my sideboard so i'm like yeah i'll just play card and just use it as like a terrible divination and uh, it, it actually worked <laughs> so I, I don't know uh, I got absolutely wrecked by Rare Johnny one game. Like, the negative two oh, that yeah. anthems your team, plus Vigilance, plus it, like, proliferates on your Planeswalkers, essentially. Oh, man, that card felt so brutal. I just, I had a, oh, what did I have in hand? The Black Finale? And I was like, all right, one more land, and I get to kill their board. I'll be good. And then they're like, play a Johnny, give everything plus one, plus one, so the toughness grows. I'm like, oh, no, now I got to get two more lands. And then they do it again, and I could never get the toughness low enough to actually kill stuff with uh, my finale. So that was that was a brutal loss to a Johnny there. Like, all of them are really, really I think Ryle's Eric is actually the best one. Like, if you, it has so much loyalty. If you untap minus and double removal, it's pretty much over. Um, Ugin is pretty bomb. Ugin is pretty good. Jace is pretty good. Like Jace can mill you or mill the opponent. Uh, like they all have so much loyalty and they draw cards. Chandra surprisingly good. Uh, when I looked at Chandra, I'm like, oh, it seems bad, but you can keep plus oneing and you deal a ton of damage with Chandra. And I actually killed someone by what is the the one man of black spell that removes five counters. Oh. Price price of betrayal or, or something like that. Yeah, that sounds right. I, I got lethal on someone by doing it on my own Chandra to remove five counters <laughs> to ping someone for five for lethal. So uh, they're, they're all really good. The only ones I haven't played with are Liliana and Gideon. I've Many people have played Gideon against me, and I've seen one Liliana, but I haven't personally opened them. But Gideon is also well, extremely good. I- I have not... Yeah, those are the mythic ones, so they're a little bit rarer. Uh, I played against Liliana, and it seems really good. Uh, it's, it seems like it's definitely a bomb. Gideon is also, like, a really fast clock, but for some reason it feels less unbeatable. Like, you can just use a removal spell on it and and not uh, get too far behind, but if Liliana sits out for a couple turns, oh my goodness, it is brutal. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's really fun, like... I was playing Hearthstone the other day, and whenever, every time I play Hearthstone, it's like the same, like literally the same. Like it's been I don't know how many years, and yeah, there are new mechanics or whatever, but it feels basically the same. But you know, when we play Magic, every single time, every single set feels very different, and this set is like exceptionally different. Playing with all these Planeswalker characters and how the game actually plays out, like you always have that tough decision to make, like. Uh, should I go after the Planeswalker? Should I go after the person? Should I run out my own Planeswalker? Can I defend it? And it's it's really fun. Like, I, I was actually surprised. And I am going to be sad when this set goes away. And we'll go back to, like, normal, boring creature combat. <laughs> Cor- Corset 2020 on the horizon. Hooray. <laughs> like, I don't, it's, you, I don't know. It's all these characters too right like you're like oh it's this guy right like i don't know it's it's very fun well let's transition uh still sticking with limited but transition from talking pre-release to talking a little bit about our mythic championship so uh why we're on the theme of limited richard you were up all night watching limited what did you think of pro tour level or mythic championship level limited so <laughs> it was especially tough i thought the commentators did a pretty good job so there were some times where there was a card in the battlefield and they couldn't they didn't know what it was because the set was so new like literally uh, a lot of the players and the, the people around the game they, they just saw it for the first time so they couldn't commentate on the cards as well uh but i i followed around decently i thought 
there's a lot of interesting gameplay uh, that happened in the matches, and I actually felt it was more interesting than watching Modern. <gasps> uh, but I, I don't know. I really liked it. I I, I like War of the Sparks so much, Seth. <laughs> like I, I don't I don't know what happened, but I was I was like, oh man, Limited is on. Like, geez, like you know, run out. Coffee's not even done, and like start watching. Like I'm like, oh, pack one, pick one. What's he gonna do? Like, oh no, right? Like I don't know. It was actually very exciting, but for new players, I'm like. I don't think they can understand what's going on. They tried this new thing where they tried to rank power level. Uh, so when they flashed up a card, they had like a five-star rating system where they were like, oh, this is how good the card is in a vacuum. It was so small and barely touched upon that I don't know that it did anything. <laughs> and the uh, other thing... Yeah. And it, oh. It's so hard to rank cards in a vacuum, too. Like A card that could be, have a low rating can be really good on a certain board state or vice versa. So uh, I'm glad they tried, but it was a little bit weird. Yeah. And I don't know, coverage was basically the same. So one of my big disappointments uh, was, you know, with the Mythic Invitational, they like upped the coverage like a million times. Uh, and we're like, okay, is it going to carry over to the paper championships now that they figured it out? And it was basically the same old with Cardboard Live enabled. Uh, so I was hoping it would be better, but it was like... It was like just kind of a regular pro tour in that sense, but I, I thought the myth, uh, the the War of the Spark cards uh, were pretty cool. They they had these little promo segments where they would explain the new cards and the new mechanics uh, and how they work. Like they explained proliferate and things like that, and I thought that was really good. Uh, that's especially good for new players. And then of course the new players were slammed into watching like Tron versus Affinity with like a million cards on the battlefield. And I don't think like ever once did they explain how Tron actually worked, <laughs> right? Or uh, you know, how Arcbound Ravager or Igmoth Nexus gets a kill or anything. Uh so that part was probably super confusing for new players. And I think that probably played a factor into the numbers we saw. Like if you were a new player, no no way you would understand anything like the just the basic fact that three tron lands gives you seven mana and stuff like that like was not covered and it's just tough to follow along like it's it's exceptionally tough like it's tough following a standard set it is impossible to follow a modern set without knowing what all the cards do yeah, no, I think that's a, a good point. Like, coverage, it wasn't bad by any means, but it certainly wasn't anything like the Mythic Invitational. We didn't have uh, any pyrotechnics or <laughs> WWF intros for players or anything, so it, it felt like a normal pro tour for the most part, how they have been for a while. I, I did like that it felt a little bit more sped up to me. There wasn't as much uh, dead time. They had a lot of these short, like, filler segments. They were doing time walk matches, so I felt like the pacing was improved to some extent, but it was essentially uh, just a pro tour, and you mentioned the numbers. The numbers were not really great. I think on Sunday, for the top eight, we broke 20,000. Maybe we got up close to 25, but we were mostly hovering, like, 18 to 20 for most of the weekend, and last time we had a modern pro tour, we had, like, 45k or something so it was very low viewer wise it might be a combination of things i think you're right it is hard for new players also it's pre-release weekend i tweeted about it and a lot of people were like ah, i like playing magic more than I like watching magic so i went to pre-release instead of watching the mythic championship some people said they didn't even realize that mythic championship was actually a pro tour <laughs> with the rebranding of the name they were oh, like wow. oh i didn't even realize this was actually a pro tour event i just thought it was like some random tournament 
it. Yeah, there, there <laughs> so, were some competing factors like the Hearthstone. I don't even know what it's called. The Hearthstone World Championship. I think it's Worlds. Yeah, yeah it was going on. Avengers Endgame is out this weekend. You know, if I had the choice of squinting and reading cards on screen or or watching, you know, Captain America, like, what do you think I'm going to do? Uh, and then also the pre-release and also Magic Arena. Like, I, I will admit, yeah. sometimes the round started and I was in the middle of my match and I'm like, screw this match. I'm going to keep playing, right? Like, you know, I... So, yeah, there, there's a lot of competing factors, but the numbers were disappointing. And it was disappointing that the uh, level of effort didn't seem to increase, right? Or it's not effort. Effort's the wrong word. Budget, right? Like, they didn't pay for the Twitch embeds. They didn't pay people for the sponsored and restream and things like that. So, eh, eh modern. Paper's last hope. I was going legacy. <laughs> Technically alive, but kind of unsupported <laughs> well we'll we'll see uh, i yeah, the numbers are disappointing i will be more concerned if we sim- see similar numbers next uh, mythic championship which is also going to be modern but it's going to be modern horizons presumably not on a pre-release slash avengers endgame weekend <laughs> so if we see similar numbers at the next pro tour then i'm going to be like oh man something is really wrong but for now i they are definitely concerning, but I'm not going to be overly concerned just because there's so many different factors. Yeah. Someone at Watsi needs to get onto the scheduling plan here. Like, I, like I've, we've had like a Valentine's Day one. We've had like a Super Bowl weekend one. I'm like, what are you guys do? like? Can you not move it by a week? Like, I, I don't understand. Right? Like, what constraints does Watsi actually have? <laughs> well, let's uh, move on from talking about how they covered the Mythic Championship, and talk a little bit about Constructed at the Mythic Championship. So uh, the format, as you mentioned, was modern. In the end, uh, we had a top eight that was mostly humans in Tron, along with uh, one Phoenix deck, one Titan Shift deck, one Affinity deck. Uh, so Richard, what did you make of the actual results of the modern portion of the tournament? So it looked like normal modern so there there was a a big fear that with the london mulligan and open deck lists that you know modern would be this wild west and no one knows what's going on but it was basically the same thing except players played slightly differently and their decks were slightly configured differently with uh, a lot of uh main deck graveyard hate and things like that but other than that it looked like a normal modern event and uh, the usual suspects showed up and then the usual suspects won and then that was that. So nothing too crazy with all the changes, uh, the two changes. And I actually think of the two changes, Open Deckless played a bigger role than the London Mulligan. But uh, Watsi's collecting that data. So uh, we'll, we'll see from their report. I'm sure they'll write an article about it. Yeah, I hope I hope they do uh, write an article about it. It will be interesting. The London Mulligan rule, I, in some sense, I agree with you. Definitely the everyone playing broken turn one decks that was not realized i think the combination as you mentioned of open deck list and the mulligan rule did have a big effect on the tournament and we did see some uh some sort of i guess i would call them london mulligan rule non-games uh but the non-games they weren't necessarily people winning on turn one it was more people being able to mulligan into their rest in peace or double ley line of the void against a deck that's trying to do something unfair and then just like having nothing happen we had one game on camera near the end of the swiss where uh, mono red eldrazi just had like the triple ley line draw <laughs> against dredge and just like put them all into play and had one land in hand and did nothing for a bunch of turds but still won because they had three 
ley lines. So uh, I think there was definitely an impact, but it wasn't the everyone's comboing off on turn one. The metagame looked more or less similar to what you would expect. More Tron, more Dredge, maybe, compared to the broader metagame, but within the realm of uh, reason, I guess. Nothing was too out of whack. So it'll be interesting. Do you have any sense moving out of this tournament uh, as far as expectations for this new mulligan rule? Like, based on this weekend... Do you think we're just going to see it implemented game-wide in a couple of months? They said M9, uh, M20 was the time frame, assuming it did actually go into effect. I, I think we'll see it. I think uh, all the pros seem to be uh, for it. It leads to way more actual games of Magic, which is kind of the, the one thing that kind of stops new players, where you, you sit down and play a game of Magic... And uh, you know what's worse than being stone-rained and wastelanded out of the game? Like, you just do it to yourself by not drawing lands or not drawing the right cards. Like, it's literally land destruction that happens on you just by RNG, right? So it feels really bad. And Modern didn't seem adversely impacted. And even if it was slightly, I think they'd go ahead and do it anyway. Like, their priority is standard and limited. And everyone was saying that this is great for those formats. So I think it's going to happen. And Watsi's collecting the data on the match slips. They were asking people, you know, who won, who lost, how many mulligans, right? So they were actually collecting that data for all of the matches, not just the, the feature match. So they'll have a lot of data. And I suspect we're just going to go with it because nothing was incredibly broken. It's not like these weird decks came out of the woodworks. Older formats will have to adjust, but standard and limited where Watsi makes all their money uh, were significantly improved. So I... I expect this to go. I also expect it to go through. I don't know if I agree that it leads to less non-games. I think it leads to a different type of non-game that I was kind of talking about before, where people find their Haymaker sideboard cards, or the Haymaker's traditionally sideboard card that they're playing in their main deck now. So I don't know if it actually led to less non-games in Modern, but still, like you said, uh, Wizards' main focus is standard and limited, and I think that this weekend wasn't so much of a disaster by any stretch that Wizards is going to be like, oh my god, we can't do this. Uh, sure, there are some things that maybe it's not great for Modern. Maybe it's like roughly the same in terms of number of non-games, all things considered. But when you consider how much it potentially benefits other formats, uh, I think Wizards will deal with whatever consequences there are uh, in Vintage and Legacy and Modern for the sake of Standard and Limited being better. Yes, how will it affect Commander Seth? <laughs> yeah. I think it'll be great. I think this is like you you don't you don't want to be punished for your you want your deck to be more inherently consistent. Right. I think that is a good thing, except for when you have broken combos. And if broken combos are you know screwing everything up, then ban the combos, right? And make it so that when you build a deck, you have a reasonable chance of playing the deck you built as opposed to drawing all the bad cards and then dying. So I, I like it. So uh, one of the other things that kind of happened, Matt Sperling ended up second at the Pro Tour with Affinity, which is interesting anyway, because Affinity's <laughs> mostly gone by the wayside for hardened scales at this point. So just like old school Affinity doing well. But the twist here is... Uh, theoretically, Matt didn't even make the top eight. He was in ninth place, but then we found out going out of the Swiss and into the top eight that, uh, uh, Yuya Wannabe ended up getting, uh, 
ended up getting DQ'd from the tournament for having Mark sleeves. So, uh, Richard, what did you think about the Yuya situation? Yeah. So Yuya Watanabe, not Yuya Wannabe. Uh, so uh, I, that was it's especially especially <laughs> soul crushing for me because I was cheering him on the entire tournament. Uh, I love the Japanese players and he got DQ'd for Mark sleeves. Uh, and they concluded that the Tron lands were marked in a certain way and we have no other additional information outside of this, uh, but they are reviewing it. So he was obviously DQ'd from the tournament. So that can happen. I think no matter what your intent was, whether you were cheating or not cheating, you're going to get DQ'd, I think. Uh, and then they're looking at his MPL ed- eligibility, his Hall of Fame status. But I'm going to assume that their ruling was correct. Like, he is a Hall of Famer. He is MPL. You are not going to lightly throw these acu- uh, accusations out. And these judges have been trained to look at this for a long time. So my belief is they double, triple, quadruple checks before making this decision. Uh, so, you know, their ruling is their ruling. And there's not, nothing more to comment, right? And I, I don't know that Wizards will add any more information. Uh, I, I guess if... No, they probably won't. Right. So I think that's all we're going to hear about this. Right. Uh, but it, it was very disappointing because a lot of people looked up to him and I was cheering him on and like, eh. Like, it's just, yeah. it's just one of those things that paper magic comes with. Right. Like, you know, you can't really cheat on arena, especially if it's like in person arena. Like, there's no way to really cheat. But with paper, there's so many. Uh, cheats and misplays and accidents, uh, you know, things that can go awry intentional or not, uh, that, you know, this stuff comes up. And every time it comes up, it looks bad for the game, right? Uh, so, so, eh, right? Like, kind of a, a mark on Magic's eye for this weekend. Yeah, definitely disappointing. Uh, I always root for Yuya too. Uh, he's just such a great player. Uh, I think that, yeah. I think it's pretty clear that the sleeves are marked. I think that people that are talking about the situation and wondering, like, if the sleeves are marked, I think that's kind of off base. There's no way that multiple judges would have, like, gone through this process and DQ'd Yuya if the sleeves weren't marked. I think uh, the question comes down to whether it was intentional or not. I guess we'll find out. (laughs) I don't think we'll ever get pictures of the sleeves or some of the stuff people are asking for, but we'll find out because either there will be some sort of consequences coming down from the DCI or from Wizards as far as MPL, or nothing will happen, and that'll kind of be the answer to it. So I'm not expecting Wizards to like go out of their way to address the situation, uh, unless there is uh, some sort of consequences where there's like uh, a banning, a suspension, DCI suspension or something, then that would probably become public. I wouldn't be surprised if there were some sort of consequences just because we had an MPL player that was held out of the Mythic Invitational based on uh, ADQ for opportunistic cheating, uh, even though the situation was a little bit, it wasn't uh, like any savage premeditated cheat or anything. So I think that the MPL is held to a higher standard, uh, rightly or wrongly, I would assume rightly. Um, so I think there, there's a chance there will be something. Maybe you have to skip a pro tour or something. And then if Wizards does determine it was intentional, then, uh, then I guess it'll be up to them to determine the proper course of action. So I'm like you. I'm mostly just disappointed. I think it's going to be all or nothing punishment. Either you declare innocence and no punishment or you declare guilty and ban from everything. Like, I just can't see, like, 
oh yes, uh, the cheating happened and you're only gone for like one pro tour or something like that. I just can't see because these people are the face of the magic brand. Uh, so they are held to a higher standard. So I don't see them making like this kind of gray decision. I think it's going to be, you know, everything or nothing. Okay. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I guess the, the argument I would see is if it was like, there wasn't cheating, but you're an MPL player and you should have went to the next level and made sure that your sleeves were uh, not yeah. in that condition. I guess that then makes maybe sense. Maybe there could be like a middle ground, like we're going to make you not go to the next pro tour because you should have been more aware of that as an MPL player, but we believe you didn't actually do this intentionally. Do, do you think they would be like, you're banned from paper magic, but digital magic is fine because it's a re- <laughs> like, I, I don't think they would ever do that, right? Like, because, you know, MPL will be online. Or is it? I don't yeah. actually know. I mean, I don't know if they would actually ban someone's arena account uh, as far as just being able to play, but I assume that you would not be able to play Mythic Championships in either if you were banned. Like, yep. I, think, I think it would go both ways. Um, any other Pro Tour slash Mythic Championship thoughts, Richard, before we move on to our next topic? Oh, we didn't talk about Open Deck lists. So oh, we did not talk about Open Deck lists. They had the Cardboard Live extension, and I don't know how successful that was uh i know we used it to get deck lists to share but once you've seen one tron deck like do you need to see other tron decks uh but because of that they made deck lists public starting from round four or five or something like that uh and i think that actually had an impact on the game because when you sit down and you're mulliganing, sometimes you have like a hand that's great against aggro, but bad against control, or great against combo, but terrible against aggro. And like, you don't know what your opponent is doing. So you have to kind of do like a blind mulligan there. Uh, now you don't have to, you look at their deck list, like, oh, I know what you're playing. So I know if my hand is good or not. So you get to make that choice. Uh, when you play cards like Meddling Mage, it is not so blind now, right? You know their exact deck list. You know, you know how many uh, exact Ugins, Oblivion Stones, or whatever they're playing. So you can make an informed choice of what to name and what has a higher likelihood of being drawn. So I think there was a tangible impact to the game. Uh, I don't know how they would measure that. But what did you think, Seth? What did you think about these deck lists? And the, the other thing interesting was full main decks, sideboards, they only gave you the cards, but not the numbers. And I don't know why it had to be this complicated like <laughs> yeah that part is a little weird i don't understand like how much of the numbers of sideboard cards actually matter i don't know uh i will say i really like cardboard live i think that's a really significant addition to coverage so that part is definitely good as far as the open deck list part i think the impact is a little more complicated i'm not really sure if that's good or not i tend to think if it improves coverage enough that it's probably a good change just because coverage is pretty important if you're going to try to be an eSport. So there is a cost to having open deck lists, uh, and it does improve some decks, make some decks worse, make some cards better. I think open deck lists, along with the London Mulligan rule, is why we saw this major trend towards main deck graveyard hate. Just looking through, they published all 550-some lists. Looking through the list, so many decks are playing some amount of graveyard and that's partly because of the format, but it's partly because you know if you're playing against Dredge or Is It Phoenix or another deck that's soft to that, and you can use the London Mulligan rule to find it, and if it's not a matchup where that's good, you can use the London Mulligan rule theoretically to put your graveyard hit on the bottom and not have it. So I feel like there was a pretty big impact there. Whether or not it's good or bad, 
it's really hard to say. Uh, I, I think that the benefits for coverage probably outweigh the drawback of like rogue decks doing worse or sideboard hosers being more consistent. But I don't know. Do you think this is something they stick with? Do you think this is another test uh, where they're seeing how this goes and we might see this moving forward? I think they will stick with it because they seem to really like it. They were, they were talking about cardboard live the entire weekend. I would like to see full sideboards. Like, I don't know what this nonsense is with like sideboards with no numbers. Like, why is sideboard less important? Like, why don't you show the main deck with no numbers, right? Like, I have no idea why it's set up like this. I would just like to see full-blown deck lists. Uh, I would like to see them not lean so heavily on Cardboard Live. I'd like to see them be displaying the deck list and talking about the decks rather than uh, just saying, click on the extension and look at whatever. Like I'm like, I'm sitting on my couch watching TV. I'm not clicking anything, right? So if you're not showing it to me, I'm not seeing it, right? So I, I like to see them integrate it more, but I do think it's going to stay. I would just like to see full decks. Like, I don't know why it's like these weird, you know, no sideboard number. Like, does it really matter that much? You've gone kind of this far, just go all the way. Uh, but I, I will say that it, it does affect the game and probably, uh, like you said, the the coverage upside uh, probably outweighs this, but don't, I remember reading so many like legacy articles about identifying your opponent's deck based on their turn one play. Like if they play Misty Rainforest and fetch up a volcanic, like what does that mean? What deck is it, right? Should you be holding up counters or like, what does that mean, right? So that part of the game is gone now with open deck lists. Uh, but I think that's a fair sacrifice for improved coverage and plus legacy coverage and games are like eh right so I mean I think a more meaningful impact to like modern is it does make playing rogue decks or unusual cards worse like a lot of the ways you get value out of playing a weird unknown or underknown deck is your opponent doesn't have the information uh, about the cards and the deck and its synergies and you can pick up some extra percentage points and wins because of that so i think it does make that work uh worse which for me personally is disappointing because i like playing weird decks but i still think that the benefit to coverage probably even outweighs that the one thing i would say is i guess i hope they they either go all or nothing as far as open deck lists i think having open deck lists for tournaments that are covered on Twitch for the sake of Cardboard Live is a little bit weird. I would rather just have them be, okay, like Pro Tours and GPs, we're going to all have open deck lists, whether oh, yeah, there's Twitch right. coverage or not, rather than just like select tournaments that happen to be on Twitch get open deck lists. Yeah, so the all our Grand Prix with no video coverage. Uh, I would assume the rule would apply there too. Otherwise, it's weird because then you have two different modern formats. One where you have deckless yeah. and one where you don't. Yeah, so I hope it gets standardized one way or another, and we do it all or nothing regardless of uh, what is on Twitch and what's not. Anyway, let's move on from the world of Mythic Championships. We got one more topic before Fish Mail, and Richard, we got some uh, super sweet, kind of special cards coming in Japanese War of the Spark Packs. Uh, do you, do you want to give us the info on these cards, Richard? All right, this this was the crossover everyone was waiting for. There are like entire TCGs whose brand is built on being anime. And now we have anime Japanese style art planeswalkers uh, for all of the planeswalkers. So they will be uh, in War of the Spark boosters, replacing the regular planeswalkers 50% of the time. And so that's the Japanese boosters. But they'll also be available in the WPN promo packs during Corset 2020 season. Uh, and they'll, 
they'll be printed in Japanese, but be available worldwide as promos. And that's all we have for now. The the kind of face card of this is Liliana. I think the foil version is going for like over $500 or something at the moment, or it was during the weekend. And you need to check them out. It's just like Japanese artists doing uh, their interpretation of the Planeswalkers. And not only that, but there's a lot of stuff going on with the card frame. Like a lot of like stuff is overflowing the card frame and it looks just a lot cooler than our normal magic cards. What do you think about yeah. these these promos, Seth? They look amazing. I don't really watch anime. I don't know any of these Japanese artists, and these cards look so cool. I think these cards look way cooler than the Mythic Edition Planeswalkers, even, or a lot of the other, like, special cards that we've seen recently. This, I think, is very near the top of the list. The art is just, it's different, and I think... Uh, rightly or wrongly, one of the criticisms that we hear of magic art these days is it tends to all look the same. Uh, there's They've gotten much more on top of keeping this like cohesive artwork between sets, and I think that's probably good in a lot of ways, but I think in some ways, it's part of what makes these Planeswalkers so exciting, is they just don't look like typical magic cards. They're coming out of the frame, the art is super unique, they look like anime characters, so uh, I love these. I assume that people that like know and love anime and these artists love them even more. But even for me, who's just like, oh, that's a really cool-looking magic card, I think these Planeswalkers are are spectacular. And I am also shout-out to Wizards, who managed to keep this under wraps. In a world of leaks and stuff trickling out, no one was uh, talking about these, leaking these, until the official announcement went up the beginning of last week. Just like, oh, by surprise, spoiler season's done. Here's all these really awesome Planeswalkers. Yeah, to be fair, if someone leaked it, no one would believe them. They're like, what? Like, Why would it be <laughs> anime? But it, it's... it's uh, like, if you don't know, Seth, the Liliana is made by Yoshitaka Amano. And he is famous for the Final Fantasy art. Have you ever played Final Fantasy? Like the, uh, a, the, the a little old, bit a long time ago. Yeah. So if you, if you did and you remember, you'll see that that art is very similar because it's the same artist. And that is, you know, partially why, uh, the Liliana is so expensive because it's a fa- very famous person. The art is awesome and it's an iconic character. Uh, I, I wish we had, more of that. Like, I don't even know what it would be. Like, I don't know, like, what are mainstream, like, you know, like a Bob Ross art, but like that can't be done anymore, right? But like, it, it would be something like that, right? Like, someone who's famous uh, for making game art and then they make a magic card. Uh, so yeah. maybe like, maybe like comic book artists, like do the same thing with like American comic book artists that have their own like style and stuff. That, that would be incredible. Can you imagine like a superhero <laughs> I know you don't. I know you don't know anything about Avengers. I, but... I'm sure I would think they were sweet. <laughs> oh yeah, like oh that that is a really good point. Like the comic book art style, like oh that that would be very sweet. Like we we have a lot of opportunity to make cool magic promos. So I'm excited that they're they're doing this. I want one of these Lilianas. Are you going Can't. to buy a five hundred dollar Liliana, Richard? No, but I'm hoping it comes onto Magic Online. <laughs> I I believe because I've uh, cracked a few treasure chests. I believe they are all on Magic Online and treasure chests because I already a couple of them. Yes, are they in English? In, they are in English. Okay, I, I I'm ready for this because the, one yeah. of the things is these Planeswalkers. Like normally. Like cryptic command, there's like one cryptic command, right? So you 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 know what it is. But now you have 36 of these. They all have a static ability and up to three <laughs> abilities. 
and like you don't even know the name of the place you're like yeah okay it's uh it's vivian but which which version of vivian like what is her <laughs> actual name like i have no idea so being in japanese is actually very confusing <laughs> so oh uh, yeah the, that, the <laughs> only downside i would say is apparently uh, local game stores. They said in the article, like, oh, these are going to be available everywhere. You can buy boxes, even if you're not in Japan. But apparently, like, game stores had to put in their orders for Japanese boxes, like, a few weeks ago, and no one knew that these planeswalkers were part of them, and there would be, like, absurdly high demand for Japanese boxes for this set. So it's going to be a little bit awkward as far as getting your hands on uh, these boxes outside of uh, actually being in Japan, where this is, like, the normal language for your magic cards yeah just confuse people just get like normal card that's japanese version then get promo card <laughs> that's also <laughs> japanese and you're like i'm playing card tribal good luck <laughs> all right i think that it is time to answer some fish mail so richard lead us through some fish mail questions all right if you have questions send them to at mpg goldfish with the hashtag mpg fish mail and we'll get to your questions on air Manseer Legros, your Brazella's end deck made me think how there are tons of stacked cards that suffer because modern is so fast, like Gisela. What are some of your favorite cards that seem really strong, but just can't make the cut? For me, it's Underworld Cerberus. Oh boy. <laughs> Flashbacks of the beginning. Yes, that is, I was going to say, of the beginning of the cast with Chaz and his Underworld Services. Oh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, uh, Heartless Summoning. That's a card that just, it screams I could be broken and it never actually ends up being broken. It depends if they print something that you can heartlessly summon and thought seize people. <laughs> like that, I think without disruption, like you can't play these fair cards. Same with Underworld Servers. It's like too fair. You need some combo where you can loop it and it didn't even see play in standard. So to see play in modern, uh, it has to be part of a combo deck, not as like a, a value card. Uh, K Frizzle. Now that the Japanese plane walkers are a thing, will there be a way to add them to our deck list and will their prices be listed on the site with links to purchase them? So you can add them to your deck list. So there's an option to use specific card versions on the deck list. Uh, currently, we don't have prices for them though because they are so rare uh, and the prices aren't available yet. But when we get the prices, they'll just automatically show up. So yes, you can actually do that. Uh, Mint Black Lotus, can Richard put format legality markers on card pages? Yes, that that is happening. And Cezeros, with so many Planeswalkers coming out and a good amount of Legendary still being played, do you feel it'd be better or worse to go back to the rule of one player being able to control a particular Legendary? So this is the, the old Legendary rule, where if you had like a Liliana the Veil and I played Liliana the Veil, your Liliana the Veil died. I think that it would make the game worse. I think that's it's a relatively unfun rule now that we've seen how it works without that rule. Yeah. Uh, to to be able to uh, not play your cool card or have your cool card killed because your opponent also has a copy. So I think it would make the game less fun, actually. Yeah, I, I get what they're going with, like, flavor fails, but, like, we have flavor fails all the time. Like, I can use Gideon's Sacrifice to save Gideon or something. Like, I don't know, right? Or I could have an Eldrazi team up with... Phyrexians or something. Like, I don't know, right? We can always break the story. Uh, so, but in this case, I think the mechanic makes the game worse. Uh, but I do understand, like, why are there two legendaries? Right? Like, why do you have two Lilianas? Like, like I, I don't know, right? 
Dylan J9889, do you guys think for the rarity of Planeswalkers that it's going to stay at Mythic, Rare, and Uncommon after the set? Uh, also, was it wrong to be upset that the art for Gideon didn't have him in the original Dakon Black Blade pose? Uh... I don't think it's wrong to be upset. That would have been cool. Uh, I think that we're going to go back to normal in general. Uh, I think that we'll see Mythic Planeswalkers and not lower rarities. I think that with War of the Spark looking like it's going to be extremely successful and well-received, that we'll probably see this again. But I don't think I expect Planeswalkers to just be at uncommon and rare in every set or anything. Do we typically get rare Planeswalkers? We do, right? Not since the no. first Planeswalkers ever printed were rare, but since then they have been exclusively Oh, they've mythic. all been mythic? Yeah. I can see rare Planeswalkers being a thing, but never, like, uncommon. Like, I think uncommon is, like, special. And you might see one randomly. But kind of like how we see vehicles randomly show up. Maybe you'll see that. But I, I somehow still don't don't like it because it's hard to balance, right? If you just give like one random uncommon planeswalker somewhere, it's hard to balance. Uh, hate bears for life. Do you guys think the success of humans in London was due to the was partially due to the open deck list? Being able to know what kind of interaction you need in your opening hand seems ideal for that deck. Uh, yeah, I think that definitely helps. Knowing if you need, like, a Thalia or a Meddling Mage or one of your disruptive pieces compared to just, like, okay, I want to keep the biggest creatures possible, I think that definitely is relevant. Even though Humans isn't a deck that's going to, like, mulligan to four to find a certain card very often. Yeah. Uh, again, Penguin, what do you think about a Grixis zombie hunt deck that uses a triple transformative sideboard with Countryside Crusher, Tassiger, and Swan Assault? Oh. Uh, that sounds super spicy. <laughs> uh, I guess I'd have to actually see the deck list, but I like the idea. It sounds fun, at least. All right, last question. Eleven Vicious with the London Pro Tour out of the... People like to say Pro Tour. Mythic Championship. Everything is mythic now. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the mulligan rule and combo decks going forward? They had no real presence in the tournament, though Ad Nauseam had the highest win percentage. Would you be willing to test Ad Nauseam with the mulligan rule? Yeah, I mean, if that's something that people wanted to see, uh, I would be willing to test it with the mulligan rule. I think that... Uh, I think that... Part of it is the open necklace thing. I think that's a big impact on it. Like we were kind of just talking about people being able to find the right uh, silver bullet sideboard cards or hate cards for the matchup is definitely more detrimental to combo uh, than it is to other styles of decks. But yeah, I would be interested in trying Ad Nauseam. I think the thing that I've been... I realized even before the Pro Tour, we were talking about it a little bit, is I feel like the format is so prepared for graveyard-based combo decks that it doesn't surprise me that we saw Ad Nauseam, a combo deck that still wins quickly, is hard to interact with, but doesn't use the graveyard do well. We also saw, like, Cheerios, which also kind of fits in that same space, where it's a fast combo deck that benefits from the mulligan rule, but doesn't use the graveyard. I think those are the decks that uh, are really shining right now, with the format having open deck lists and being super prepared for the graveyard-based combo decks, because we didn't see Gorio's Vengeance reanimating things. We saw a lot of graveyard hate wrecking decks like Arclight Phoenix and Dredge, so I think that's that would be my next step as far as London Mulligan uh, mulligans in modern is working on those combo decks that don't use the graveyard all right that's all our fish mail for this week thank you to everyone who sent them in if you have questions send them to at mtg goldfish with the hashtag mtg fish mail 
and we'll get to your questions on air. And I think that that brings us to the end of episode 222 of the MTG Goldfish podcast. So, Richard, thanks for hanging out. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we will be back next week to talk about whatever sweet and interesting things have happened in the world of magic. So, until then, enjoy the War of the Spark release this weekend, and yeah, this is the crew signing out. Thank you.